trust behavior more so than these actual physiological measures of stress because they're so so difficult to interpret there are so many different factors look one of them with cortisol is that any physical activity will increase your cortisol levels any If you get a dopamine rush when geeking out to the science of behavior, this episode is for you. I literally could not wait to release this show because it is packed with so many mind-blowing insights. Dr. Simone Gadbois is someone I've been wanting to interview to get his take on aggression, and he doesn't disappoint. I pick Simone's brain about topics such as behavioral endocrinology and how hormones relate to aggression. We continue to explore predatory behavior as I have in previous episodes. And we chat about the behavior sciences that might be best suited for learning about and addressing aggression. And that's just the tip of the iceberg for this episode. And this episode is sponsored by AggressiveDog.com, where you can find a variety of educational offerings with a focus on helping dogs with aggression, including the Aggression in Dogs Master Course, the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world on helping dogs with aggression, and the Aggression in Dogs Conference, a three-day virtual event happening from October 2nd to 4th, 2020, with 10 amazing speakers, all experts in their field. You can find out more by going to thelooseleashacademy.com. Hey everyone, I'm Mike Shikashio, and I'm here with the brilliant Simone Gadbois, who has integrated ethology, animal experimental psychology, and behavioral neuroscience to study wild and domestic canids. He completed his PhD in behavioral endocrinology at the Canadian Center for Wolf Research, CCWR, examining the hormonal correlates of social behavior in wolves, as well as action sequences in wolves, coyotes, and red foxes. When the CCWR closed in 2007, he started the Canid Behavior Research Lab at Dalhousie University and focused his research on coyote-human conflicts and canine scent detection and search. He's interested in the fundamental science of olfaction and olfactory learning, as well as some applications. His lab has focused on environmental conservation, biomedical, and forensic applications of scent processing in dogs. So a whole bunch of things that you've learned over the years in your career. Uh, so welcome, Simone. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this show because uh, there's. I know we're going to get into a lot of geeky topics here, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to be interested in your take on those things as well. So let's jump right in here. Um, one of the questions I ask a lot of my guests is, you know, what is your definition of aggression? Well, <laughs> oh, I thought I thought I knew what to uh, answer this one. Um, it's um, first of all, aggression is a behavior. It sounds stupid to say this, but you know, it it a lot of the um, I think misunderstandings around some of what Karen Lorenz wrote uh, on this book on aggression comes from the fact that when he saw the English and the French translation of his book using the word aggression, he apparently said, that's not what I was writing about. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was writing on aggressiveness. 
which is, so I think it's often confused, you know, those two concepts, aggressiveness and aggression. Aggression is a behavior. That's all it is. It's something that you can see, that you can observe, but really says nothing about the internal states um, of the animal. Not that they're not relevant, but aggression is just an act. The same way that submission, the response to aggression is also just an act, a behavior. Oversimplistic definition, maybe, but that's all what it is, really. It's just a behavior. But within that category, you can create very complex ethograms or uh, behavioral repertoires of aggression, including all kind of subtypes. And it includes uh, something that is very prevalent in wolf behavior, for instance, which is ritualized aggression. In fact, aggression doesn't have to be this kind of direct aggression where there's a contact between animals and blood and fur is flying around. Uh, it can be just postures. It can be growling. It can be all kinds of things that just kind of uh, manifest an intention, an intention to attack. So that is also aggression, but it is still just a behavior. Would you would you classify uh, sort of agonistic behaviors under that umbrella of, umbrella of aggression or vice versa? Would you say more aggression is under agonistic behaviors? Right. So usually agonistic behaviors based on Darwin's idea of uh, the antithesis principle is this dance between aggression and submission. So typically in ethology, that's how it's defined. So we have aggression, which is the, you know, the attack or the signaling the, the intention of attacking. And then on the other side, in that dance, you have the submission, which is often actually not just in response to aggression, but can also be what the animal will initiate. So in wolves, for instance, captive or not, by the way, it's common to see uh, individuals that will start an interaction by being submissive, you know, going down. So I don't, I don't, you know, don't pay attention to me. Everything is okay. And uh, so it is, as Darwin actually described this very, very well in his book on emotions, uh, the emotions of uh, uh, man and animals, this, this kind of like constant dance between the, the two, between aggression and submission. But that's, the umbrella term would be agonistic behaviors or agonistic interactions, which just okay. means conflict, by the way, right? It just defines right. conflict situations. So would you say then the aggress aggressive behaviors are a function of the underlying emotional states or some emotional motivation? Yeah, I would say that now. Uh, people that are more hardcore behaviorists may see it differently, although modern behaviorism has a tendency to acknowledge emotions as being important. But you are right, there's something else there. Let me just take a minute to uh, explain what I mean. In the old Greek way of thinking about the mind, uh, they always saw that there were three components to the mind. And interestingly, you find this in modern neuroscience and modern psychology. One is the cognitive stuff, uh, which is more like the inte intellectual processes, attention, memory, learning would be part of that, actually. Then you have the emotional stuff. That's more just, you know, those feelings and emotions. And then the third dimension of that is what we call motivations. And that's, it's, thing in itself, actually, even in the brain, we know this, there's parts of the brain that really, they may interact with the emotional center of the brain, like the limbic system, but they have their own little system. It's called the paralimbic system. It includes the basal ganglia, for instance. So motivations are very important in this. And it's interesting because in the academic history of ethology and psychology, you will find the discussion of aggression either 
under uh, chapters on emotion or motivation. So it can be one or the other because I think both are very heavily involved in uh, in, in the behavior of aggression. And and so, by the way, is cognition, including uh, I including cognition learning. But yes, learning has a huge part in this. Well, we all know how, for instance, aggression can be reinforcing, terribly reinforcing, self-reinforcing. I mean, right? So, um, so yeah, I think when we we when I teach to my student at least about aggression, I I include the affective, motivational, and the cognitive aspects of it because I think all three are important to understand. So could you give us some um, kind of an example of, of that? So uh, like an example of that cognitive or the emotions or the motivators for a specific you know, dog that is using uh, barking and lunging at another dog that's approaching. Um, what do you think is going on underneath the hood there? <laughs> well, so, so th- these questions are so complicated and, and the answer as well, because it so depends on the dog and their history. And the history between those two dogs, do they even know each other? But you see, that's the first part of it, in a sense. If they have a history, then you're getting into something that relates to um, their memory of each other, the memory of any memories of uh, previous interactions they've had, what they've learned from those interactions. So that is a cognitive aspect of it. Was the interaction positive or negative? Let's assume that maybe it would have been a negative one well there's like uh, probably maybe fear involved or rage right so that's the emotional aspect and the motivation is kind of an interesting one that's the third component and uh it simply means and i think that's why i really like the study of motivation i think it's it's coming back in neuroscience strongly but not so much in the behavioral sciences for some reason but the motivation is basically what makes you tick right? Or what justifies what you're doing right now? And uh, I think it's often a mystery with, with dogs. Why, why are they pissed off at this guy? I mean, we already said there's some cognitive and affective dimensions to this, but is it about a third dog in the neighborhood? Or is it about because they always fight about food? Or is it because one of them is actually not very good at signaling during play? And there's a lot of misunderstandings and it degenerates into a full uh, fight. So motivation is also very much connected to hormones, to neurotransmitters to some extent, to uh, hunger, to metabolic states. So it, it gets really complicated when you put all these three things together trying to figure out what is basically the the genesis or the the cause of an aggressive interaction. There's a lot to keep in mind. There's a lot to unpack there for sure. Uh, It's, you know, uh, to to give you an idea, I'm sure, you know, I focus a lot of my work uh, using the applied behavior analysis lens with some ethology sprinkled on top. Uh, So I kind of want to pick your brain about that. Like what, if you had to pick some of your most important, let's put a category, most important behavior sciences for dog trainers or dog behavior professionals to learn from? What would be some of your top choices there? I'm very biased here because I I will refer to the three that, that influenced me sometimes integrated and sometimes sequentially, I have to say. So I, I started as a biology student, actually, 
funny enough, which is still the case today, the biology department where I was was not terribly interested in uh, in behavior per se or animal behavior at the time. It was the mid '80s, and it was a lot about the new molecular genetics and you know all that kind of stuff. So, and I had no interest whatsoever in that approach to biology. So, uh, and then I realized that the the guys up the hill at the university where I was were actually doing quite a bit of uh, animal behavior and neuroscience actually in psychology, and I thought hmm, that's interesting. So I started taking psychology classes. Later on, I looped back into biology through behavior during my PhD with John Fentress, but um, I, I got most of my my behavior initially from psychology, not biology. Uh, but I always had an interest in the physiology of behavior, and that's something that I got also initially mostly from psychology, but I got it later from biology as well. So basically, my answer is... I think a good understanding of animal experimental psychology, which, by the way, includes the study of animal learning. That's what Skinner was. He was a psychologist in experimental psychology. Ethology, because that is the study of natural behaviors of animal in their natural environment. And I think we can learn a lot from that, no doubt about it, even with dogs. And then neuroscience. And again, you know, not everybody would agree with this, but I think neuroscience informs us of a lot of things. Now, for dog trainers, I think neuroscience is kind of an interesting add-on, but I'm not saying that it's giving you more skills or uh, I think sometimes it can contextualize a few things about aggression, for instance, or any other behavior for that matter. I used to do quite a bit of hardcore neuroscience, you know, what we call hard neuroscience or wet neuroscience always sounds weird to say this hard and wet anyway this is whoever came up with that technology but anyway uh but uh i don't anymore uh or much uh just because i don't want to do uh invasive research with uh, with canids but i think the models of neuroscience and our understandings of how the brain works can give us an idea of what we're looking at uh, something that we may we may discuss later is, for instance, this idea that from a neuroscience perspective, predatory behavior or predatory aggression is actually not aggression. I I have to say that in psychology and ethology, you would see people that would say that as well. It's about fifty fifty the the split there in terms of if we should consider predatory behavior as aggression. But from the neuroscience perspective, we see that as a kind of a different category of behaviors, uh, simply because it uh, involves different parts of the brain. So it sounds like, uh, let's, let's actually segue into, you know, how those sciences would relate more towards aggression. So I, I kind of agree on the, the top three that you have there. I think there's a lot to learn with the, uh, I think it's important to see, understand the observable behaviors, but also what's going on underneath and the motivations for things, uh, especially when it comes to breed-specific behaviors and the ethology aspect of it. But how about with aggression and aggressive behaviors? Uh, let's dive a little more into that and understanding, because understanding the motivations, what's going on underneath is really important for me in that aspect. So uh, what are your thoughts on that as, as far as, let's actually, let's jump into the endocrinology aspect of it. But first to find what that is for the folks that might not have uh, be familiar with that field. Well, basically, 
the field of behavioral endocrinology is mostly about the interaction between hormones and behavior, how behavior influence hormones and how hormones influence behavior. And it's a field that is relatively new simply because it's not been that long that we've been able to actually measure significant amount of hormones in the blood. Uh, we were limited by technology. In fact, uh, it's, it's, uh, for a long time, uh, let's say 100 years ago, people kind of knew that something was going on that must have been something coming from the gonads, for instance, the testicles, because they knew that if you remove testicles from uh, a young um, a cockerel, a male chicken, very early on, very early in life, that it would actually not develop as a normal male. So we've known for a long time that there were some parts of the body that were important in modulating behavior. We didn't know how. And then we figured out that, okay, it's hormones. But that took a long time bef before we could identify all of them because it was so hard to actually measure them. So it was a technology restriction, basically. But that's essentially the field. Behavioral endocrinology studies uh, hormones and behavior. Which uh, hormones are, when it comes to aggression, should we pay paying attention to? <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, that's a very good question. Well, uh, many, actually. Uh, but if you really want to identify the one, or the ones, I should say, that are linked very closely to aggression, uh, it, it would be the androgens, and mo more specifically, it would be testosterone. There's no doubt about it. And a lot of the uh, initial evidence for this was about, uh, for instance, the realization that when you have seasonal changes uh, in hormones, like for instance, in the spring during the, um, uh, the mating season, males are more aggressive. Precisely about that, this idea that often males are more aggressive than females, although there's some exceptions in mammals and some birds, but that's often uh, true. The third one would be also the developmental changes at puberty, usually. Uh, again, males, but also females, will become more aggressive. So um, these are kind of like some of the, the, the basic links that we know with androgens and testosterone specifically. And contrary to what a lot of people think, it applies to females as well. A lot of people seem to think, oh, well, if we talk about testosterone, it's only about males. No, no, all mammals produce both female and male hormones. Uh, each sex does. It's just that it's not decoded the same way by the brain in a male than in a female. So, for instance, uh, aggression uh, is highly driven by testosterone, even in female wolves, for instance. In, in humans, we know also that androgens are extremely important in women in terms of what we would qualify as uh, I think in human literature, they call it uh, sexual assertiveness, how aggressive, more aggressive a, a woman would be sexually in terms of, uh, you know, approaching males or um, seeking uh, sexual behavior, etc. So testosterone is certainly an important one, all the other connected androgens as well. And then after that, it's a lot of what I would call indirect effects. It's often the lack 
of one of those hormones that could actually create aggression. Well, we all know about oxytocin, for instance. So females that have low levels of oxytocin after birth, after the birth of their young, will often eat them, for instance. You see that in rats especially, but there's a fair number of mammals where that will occur. Or they will simply not care for the young. So oxytocin can therefore be a factor in all of this. In males, it's often vasopressin. That's a little uh, cousin of oxytocin. You also have hormones that will activate aggression in, uh, well, actually, I'll just give the example. Uh, obviously, cortisol. <laughs> so highly stressed individual can, can, be, uh, can be aggressive. Catecholamines like adrenaline, for instance, can do that as well. If you get frustrated or fearful, that also can increase your chances of uh, being uh, aggressive. And I say aggressive here. Um, it just means that that's the predisposition, doesn't necessarily translate into aggression, but it increases the probability that you would engage in an aggressive interaction. Let's, uh, let's talk about that, uh, the cortisol. You mentioned that. And uh, one of the common, th- not common, but sometimes I hear, you know, that uh, there's a misconception that it can take days for the cortisol to, you know, or the, the animal or dog to return to homeostasis. What are your thoughts on that? It's, it's, is it generally hours or it depends on the dog or? Yeah. I don't know where that came from. And it's funny because when, when, when I read this and I challenge people in giving me the, the paper that claimed that, it, it's n- never coming to me. Um, no, nobody's sending me that reference. Yes, it depends on the dog. It depends on the stressor. It depends on, um, well, actually, those are the two, the two main uh, causes. It, well, I, I would add actually to this, which is part of it depends on the dog, on the integrity of the endocrine system of that dog as well. If you have a dog that has PTSD or a PTSD-like kind of uh, situation, they, they often will be very slow to recover. So it depends. Now, assuming a normal dog, cortisol levels actually, if the dog is healthy and psychologically sound, recover fairly quickly. They have the capacity actually to recover very, very, very quickly within, uh, within 20 minutes, 30 minutes in some cases. But again, it depends, right? It depends on the stressor. It depends if there was a, a, um, a chronic stressor that's been there for a long time that's keeping this dog not at baseline, but keeping this dog already already stressed. And then suddenly you add another one to it. Yeah, it may be hard to recover from that. We know also that animals, or humans for that matter, that have chronic stress have a tendency to have a dysregulation in the way they can actually bounce back, right? So a lot of people say that, uh, interestingly, that part of what the axis uh, that produces cortisol, which we call the HPA axis, is actually to help with recovery. So that's an interesting concept because some people say that cortisol is actually not a stress hormone, but it's a recovery hormone. So a recovery from stress. Okay, so I think this is a little bit splitting hairs, but I mean, most people would agree that stress is what actually starts usually a rise in uh, in cortisol. But yeah, there's many different factors that will determine how quickly an animal can actually recover. But recovery cannot be discussed unless you have a knowledge of the baseline previous to the prior, sorry, to the stressor. Because like I said, you could do this and come back partially. It means what? Maybe there was already a stressor here. You add another stressor and then it comes back down uh, at a higher recovery than you would have expected, right? So 
It depends. It depends. I, I do not teach my students that there's a number attached to that recovery uh, because I don't think there is one that's clear at all in the literature on this. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And I think something that as behavior consultants and trainers, we should be aware of, of how much that can affect things in that, uh, as you say, it depends, but it's something to watch for. And, and with, uh, you know, it's hard to measure, of course, we're not going in and taking levels, right? We're, we're observing behavior and body language and, and the animal's which, behavior to make those assumptions, right? Which is perfectly fine, right? As a behavioral neuroscientist, as a neuroethologist, I do strongly believe that behavior is a fantastic way of trying to figure out what's going on in the brain and what's going on in, in the endocrine system. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I think we need to trust that. It, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I will say this. I think we need to trust behavior more so than these actual physiological measures of stress because they're so so difficult to interpret. There are so many different factors. Look, one of them with cortisol is that any physical activity will increase your cortisol levels. Any. So you go for a jog around the block and you thoroughly enjoy it, that will increase your cortisol levels. Just waking up in the morning increases. Actually, you wake up because your cortisol levels go up, right? So, I mean, very normal things that happen during the day um, especially physical exertion, can actually increase those cortisol levels. So this means that to make any sense of those measures, you need very good baseline data. And I would say that about 85% of the studies don't have those good, those, uh, good uh, baseline uh, numbers. Again, fascinating stuff to think about. Uh, and I did want to jump back to, speaking of fascinating things, is back to the testosterone conversation. And you know, I've got to ask you about how about spaying and neutering in the domestic dog and just how much, you know, because this is it. I've, I've asked a lot of people this question. I think even past podcast shows about, you know, the, the different data out there about how much it affects behavior. And uh, as you mentioned, testosterone is an it's important to think about when it comes to aggression. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a little bit of a paradox there. And, and uh, I know some of my veterinary friends would be very angry with some of the things I'm about to say. But um, so that it, I think there's a trade-off. Here's the problem. I think the new trend right now is to try to keep those individuals intact for as long as possible. There's data that for health... Um, at least with some breeds, it's actually better to delay fixing them as opposed to very early interventions, which was uh, the trend like 10 years ago, right? Yet, if, but there's no way to know, if for a dog X, uh, hormones are really the cause of the aggressive problem, the problem is this, is that fixing the dog will have only an impact if you do it when they're very, very young. Okay, and I'll explain why. And this is from a behavioral endocrinology perspective. And I'm not, I'm not, it's not my advice it, by any stretch of the imagination. There's two types of effects with hormones. So even with testosterone, the first one is what we call activational effects. So activational effects of testosterone would be how testosterone during the day can fluctuate. With, with men, for instance, I'll, I'll give a human example that I give to my students uh, because I know they will remember it. There is a very well-known 
way to increase testosterone levels is to uh, either to engage in in uh, sex uh, in sex or 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 think about it or watch porn or whatever then we'll do it okay so it sometimes it doesn't uh, need to be much uh, just thoughts or some simple activities will actually fluctuate those levels you can also suppress testosterone levels by for instance getting stressed out by something okay so these are called activational effects but the more important ones arguably are what we call the organizational effects of hormones and these are fundamental they're also called developmental effects because often they're set very early in life including before birth in many animals so if their mother was stressed during their gestation may actually affect those organizational effects but it's basically how the brain was exposed to these androgens early in life so we say perinatal in the in the, the field meaning just before just after and that by the way is important because in altricial species or species that are born not very well developed like kittens and and puppies and humans to some extent uh, it's different than with precocial species like with horses or goats um, or ducks right that are hatch or born and are miniature adults but that's the key organizational effects of hormones are uh, set early in life and will determine later where that individual lies but also therefore will determine the activational effects uh, of that individual so an individual that has low androgen levels because of the organizational effects of those uh, hormones early in life will oscillate here but another one that is set here will oscillate right here right so it's a great system in a sense because it actually sets individual differences within a litter or within a clutch with birds, but it complicates everything in terms of trying to predict what's going to happen later. So in a sense, if you want to have a less androgenized brain with an altricial species like a dog, uh, getting them fixed early would make sense but like i said earlier there's health concerns attached to this so is it worth taking the risk to wait and see maybe but then we also know from that principle that if you fix a dog after sexual maturity it may have absolutely no effect whatsoever because the brain is already organized by those androgens is that clear does that make sense? Yeah, it's 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 amazingly clear in the way you put it, and it's it's so interesting, you know, and, and it just adds to the great spain neuter debate in terms of what's best. It's just there's no straightforward answer. Oh, absolutely not. And and the thing is, like, yeah, do you sit and wait? And then, I mean, look, some people would claim that after a surgery, some dogs are changed dramatically. Well, that could be some kind of placebo or arguably nocebo effect, but it, it's, it's, it's possible. But in principle, again, most of the important effects would, would have been in the first, I would guess here, probably six months of life of that, of that dog. So if you neuter after, um, it's quite possible it won't have a major effect. And it's, it's even if the hormones are not there anymore, it's the, the idea that because some parts of the brain have been sensitized to testosterone, they will still react to it fairly strongly. And it's more than that is the 
the animal will also have had time to uh, acquire some habits, bad habits. So it may not even be hormonal at some point. It's just that, you know, I've learned that that's how you react to this guy at, on the other side of the street. So there you go. I pick a fight with him. So yeah, it's 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 very complicated, and it's certainly something to think about. I would I would really engage a veterinarian in that discussion. I think they are starting to d- diverge quite a bit on opinions on this. Uh, I think there's also arguments for the breed that you're dealing with because androgens are attached to some cancers, for instance, in some breeds. So in some breeds, you may actually want to make sure that. Well, you actually either wait or delay. So talk to your veterinarian. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, and you know we have to talk about predatory behavior because uh, that's also a hot topic when it comes to aggression. So let's dive into that. So the big uh, question I get is, you know, is predatory behavior aggression? You had touched upon that, but can you expand further on that topic? So in one of my animal behavior courses, my second year course, I actually uh, – talk about about how scientists have come up with this idea of aggression and the different taxonomies uh, or categorizations of aggression that they've created. And I go through, I don't know, half a dozen or so of those, maybe a little bit more, eight or so. And it's interesting because about half, and we're talking about fairly big names in animal behavior, like E.O. Wilson, for instance, or Archer, etc. About half of them don't include predatory behavior in their categorization of aggression. And and the other half do. And I think it was almost just a matter of opinion for a while. Uh, Everybody had a kind of a different uh, explanation for why that may be the case. There's also a similar kind of discussion about uh, territorial aggression. Is that that really a thing in itself or is it something separate? Uh, Okay. But I think it's neuroscience here that kind of helped us kind of understand this. So what's interesting from the neuroscience perspective is uh, the difference between what I think Panksepp actually calls um, predatory attack uh, versus your kind of like regular defensive or reactive um, or affective for that matter aggression. And what's interesting is although in a sense, the same part of the brain is involved. A lot of this gets created and brewed uh, in the hypothalamus and also what we call the ventral PAG. You don't know to know what that is, but it's subcortical and it's very connected to the limbic system. At the same time, predatory attack or predatory aggression concerns only the dorsolateral hypothalamus, whereas the other types of aggression it's the ventromedial uh, hypothalamus. Again, predatory attack. Also, it's only the ventral PAG. And effective reactive is more like the dorsal PAG. Okay. So, in other words, within two of the parts of the brain very much involved in aggression, there's subparts, one for predatory aggression, one for effective aggression. Maybe more compelling is when you look at the neuropharmacology of aggression. And what's interesting there is that if you start giving drugs to actually change that kind of behavior, what you will notice, for instance, is that if you give uh, Librium, which is a benzodiazepine, so that's like clonazepam, lorazepam, a lot of people take this for panic attacks or anxiety disorders. If, uh, If you give Librium to animals, it will actually increase often the predatory attacks. But if you give Librium 
it will decrease the reactive aggression. So in one case, it increases it. In the other, it decreases it. The same thing with amphetamines. Amphetamines will almost always increase uh, affective or reactive aggression. Uh, but it has actually no effect whatsoever on predatory aggression. So from a neuroscience perspective, from a structural or what we call systems neuroscience, it seems there's two different systems. And from a neuropharmacological perspective, it seems that there's also something else going on here that, that does not implicate the two systems the same way. But does that change something for you guys in the kind of work uh, you do and the ABA perspective? Well, look, the end result is the same or often the same. But I guess it may matter if you're trying to find really the cause in terms of the emotional state of the animal. What's kind of interesting about the way biologists and neurothologists uh, describe predatory attack or predatory aggression is that they often call it um, quiet biting. I think that's actually a term that Panksepp uses. And what that means is that in that kind of aggression, typically, there's no obvious rage. There's nothing like overly uh, emotional in it, kind of like the animal doesn't seem to be pissed off. It's very deliberate. It's very planned. It's more akin to what we often call um, instrumental aggression, actually. I know what I want, and I'll do whatever I need to, to, to get that. And actually, one of my favorite way of thinking about aggression, so I'm, I'm diverting a little bit from this topic here, but it's still relevant, is that I explained to my student that in the literature in psychology, in neuroscience, and in ethology, independently, they, all these scientists converged to this kind of this interesting dichotomy in two types of aggression. One is reactive aggression that I just mentioned in relation to uh, predatory behavior, and the other one is proactive. And I think in most of the presentations I've seen on aggression in dogs over the last 13 years going at dog conferences, I think often those two are not uh, conceptually separated. People conflate one with the other often. And I think this matters because I wouldn't, if, if I was doing your, your kind of work, handle proactive aggression the same way as I handle reactive aggression. Reactive aggression is, is you know, hostile, emotional, it's, uh, it's impulsive, uh, spiteful in some cases. Uh, it's in response to, uh, to provocation in some cases. There's often, well, yeah, anger and frustration that is involved. Proactive or instrumental aggression is, is a lot more goal-based, right? It's planned. It's non-angry. Uh, it's very much reward-centered, which means that it's also extremely sensitive to reward. So if the experience is, is rewarding, the animal is going to do it again. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to note the distinction between those two uh, when you, you try to figure out what is making this dog tick. So Does I, that make sense? As you're, absolutely, because as you were going along there, I had another question in regards to that. And I was thinking about the dogs that are you know purpose-bred for specific tasks using aggressive behavior and that what part of the brain would be kind of, uh, and you were talking about the different parts of the systems that were working depending on the type of aggression, the type of well, what's going on. And I was thinking about the dogs that are doing tasks 
uh, where they're using aggressive behavior, but they're not doing it in the sense of, again, the reactive type of aggression you're talking about. So let's uh, use an example, maybe a livestock guardian dog barking and chasing at a predator outside the fence line or a Belgian Malinois protecting its handler that's been trained to do so, let's say, just using all positive methods or whatever. Just so, so nothing, uh, basically doing tasks that they're, that they're uh, would you say that's similar to what you're talking about in terms of a proactive aggression sense? Yes, and and uh, and in fact, in these dogs, I, I think uh, like the Malinois, regardless of what kind of work they do, actually, but you know, either for police work, for instance, or or yeah, as as uh, livestock uh, dogs. Um, uh, sorry, if you hear ducks, you're not hallucinating. I have uh, pet ducks in the house. <laughs> I've, I've played. It's it's a pandemic uh, uh, project where I decided to play Karan Lorenz during my. Uh, my my pandemic summer by imprinting two uh, two little ducks. Anyway, they, uh, for some reason they're a little bit noisy right now. I apologize. For well, they're, well, they're welcome to the podcast, so no worries. <laughs> Go see the dogs. All right, they imprinted the dogs as well. So, uh, so uh, if, if 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 in those dogs you actually end up seeing this kind of hostile or, or reactive aggression, I think there's a problem. And it's interesting because I was told that in some dogs, it happens more than others. For instance, Dutch Shepherds, that are fantastic dogs that are very close to Malinois in some, in some ways. I've seen some of them work in the Netherlands. It was fantastic, actually. But you can see some of them are at that stage where uh, it's not clear on which side they are. If it's just that proactive, I'm doing my job kind of thing. I just need to get those sheep to move. And the Dutch, by the way, are working with that breed. I forget the name now that has the horns and everything. So those dogs need to be a little bit more firm than your regular border collie. Let's put it that way. Um, but they seem to have a tendency to flip easily into the more like, I'm pissed off. Like I told you to move and you didn't like, you know, so uh, it's an interesting balance there. But yes, technically dogs that are working dogs that need to be aggressive, it would be that proactive instrumental or to talk about motivation actually we'll often say also incentive motivation or incentive motivated uh, uh, aggression and the reactive one is uh, is the one that people love to talk about in the context for instance of uh, resource guarding i think that's the one that is most likely to come up although i think you have to be careful there because again i would i would observe the dog very carefully to try to figure out exactly what is going on if if the dog is reacting because another dog is approaching the bowl. That's most likely reactive. That's that's hey, that's my food. Get you know that you're pissing me off here. The other dog that is approaching the dog eating may have pure proactive aggression. At that point, I want that food. It's not personal, buddy, but I want this and just get out of the way. Right. One of the suggestions here is that again, from a neuroscience perspective. It, it's very different what happens within those dogs in in their reactions to to the well the environment and the and the situation. I think some of that can be also very uh, informative if you uh, if you try to intervene. So, for instance, in the cases of proactive or instrumental aggression, because it's usually self-reinforcing kind of aggression, because it helps you attain a goal and you attain a goal, therefore it, you know you repeat it. Uh, I think. There's all kinds of really nice operant kind of uh, uh, tools that you can use there to um, to stop that behavior, including extinction and um, redirecting the behavior, etc., reinforcing other behaviors. 
But if it's reactive, then it becomes something else because now you have frustration, you have anxiety, you have fear, you, maybe you have rage even. Then things like counter conditioning start making a little bit, uh, 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 you know, more sense, uh, more like classical conditioning techniques uh, would address the, let's say, the emotional dimension uh, or foundation of that aggression. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it, it's actually how I approach a lot of my cases when I'm working with dogs that are, you know, like the ones we were talking about, like, again, the Belgian Malinois or the livestock guarding dog uh, with the more proactive aggression. And it's much more operant how I'm approaching it because it's, there's different things going working there. There's different systems in play, which kind of, you know, also made me think about the pharmacology aspect of it and I have to be really careful about what you're, you might be uh, that's being prescribed to the dog and what they're using because it might, because uh, so, some of these behaviors can look very similar and it can be easily, you can go in the wrong direction sometimes if, if you're not careful. So that's, yeah, it's very, very interesting uh, discussion to have for sure. So I, w- I want to keep picking your brain about some of the other sciences you too. So you have this long list of degrees and everything. And one of the, th- one of the focuses you also have is on olfactory, which is, I mean, we can talk all day about olfactory uh, senses as well, but I of course would like to focus on, you know, how it relates to or impacts aggressive aggression or aggressive behaviors. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is it because canids and dogs, you know, with their acute sense of smell, uh, just uh, kind of brainstorm, let's brainstorm this topic. I don't have any specific questions, but I'd like to kind of just get a general idea of what your thoughts are on how olfactory senses relate to aggression. I wish I knew. <laughs> it's a it's a tremendously complex uh, area, and and we know nothing about it because the problem we have as humans is we're mi- microsmatic, right? We don't we don't have a good sense of smell at all, and we don't live in this world of odors like they do. I mean, really, I think. All the scent marking they do, for example, is is a little bit like our Facebook and Instagram. I used to call it, uh, you know, P-mail and all that. You know, they 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 send P-mail to each other. It's true. I mean, that's what that's what it is. It's it's connected in the sense that the way that canids, including dogs, obviously scent mark. It, it says a lot about themselves, right? It's kind of a calling card. It's a business card. It, it's, it's their Facebook page. It's, uh, you know, with, with updates every day or every time they pee, there's something else going on. And that's why they spend so much time investigating their urine marks. The, the wolves, by the way, do the same thing. And even in behavior with wolves, you can tell animals that are of different social status in a pack just by the way they urinate. It's, it's fascinating. Very um, I'm going to use the old terminology here. I'm going to ruffle some uh, some feathers, but you need to understand there's some there's some truth to even the the old thinking. You know, when we talk about dominant hierarchies in wolves. Okay, so here's the thing: dominant hierarchies in wolves are not in all packs. Like David Meech told us very well with Arctic wolves, it's not necessarily the case. But he also documented mainland U.S. wolves where there's a strong dominance hierarchy. So here, again, it means it depends. But when when there is a 
uh, dominance hierarchy where there is individuals that are uh, dominant of, over others. It's uh, for the simple purpose of reproduction in wolves, by the way. It's about virtually nothing else. It all has to do with reproduction to determine which male in the pack uh, will breed with the which one female. So they're monogamous species. It's only one male and one female in the pack that will breed. So you need a system okay, to figure out who that's going to be. And um, uh, what's interesting is you can actually figure out these individuals uh, that we used to call the alphas, but now we call them the reproducers, the two reproducers, by just looking how they pee. The main male that will reproduce and female that will reproduce do the raised leg urination all the time. And all of the others will do the squat urination very low to the ground. So what's interesting is it's actually a form of ritualized aggression. It's a badge of their social status as well, right? So if they raise the leg, male or female, it just means they're spreading the news that they're the ones at the top and they're the ones that are going to have sex this season and have the puppies. The others are more like, yeah, no, just don't mind me. I'm going to have my little pee here and just don't right, directly to the ground. No chances for the wind to actually, you know, grab that scent and, and spread it around. So it's interesting because just by their posture, you can tell. But it's ritualized also in other ways. I mean, again, there is a lot there for them to sniff. And those two wolves that will reproduce in the pack happen to have the higher testosterone levels, by the way, the, both the male and the female. Uh, and that's a good thing. They're going to reproduce. And a lot of what they do by using usually ritualized aggression, so no real like kind of contact aggression, um, is to try to suppress uh, reproductive hormones of the others. And that's done, as far as we know, two ways. Behaviorally, by looking big and trying to impress the, the other ones that are, could be potential contenders, but also the content uh, of the pheromones that come from hormones in your urine. So this smells like a lot of testosterone. I'm going to leave that guy alone, right? That's kind of the idea. So it's fundamental in their social interactions. Now let's go back to the limbic system that I mentioned earlier. That's the subcortical part, the deeper part of the brain that processes emotions. And what's interesting is that your olfactory bulb ours, the, one of our dogs as well, is connected to your nose and literally one layer of cells directly into uh, your brain, okay? So from nose to olfactory bulb, you're right in the brain, basically. And the olfactory bulb is part of the limbic system. In other words, the, it's the only system in the brain when you, you can bypass the thalamus, when you can bypass the cortex, and that's why often when you, we smell something, we will have the emotion before we have the thought of what it is, okay? So you walk in the metro in Chicago, you smell that perfume, you get an emotion, and then you realize after the fact, oh yeah, that was my first girlfriend and she had that perfume when we first kiss, okay? So that's kind of the idea, is that it's your direct entry into the limbic system, into uh, emotions. So... Um, now, to be fair, it is also possible to process scent uh, cognitively, having a cortical involvement, but it's just that what's unique about scent is that you can bypass it and you can get directly into the emotions. 
So the relevance of scent is this. Like a great neuroscientist said, uh, Walter Freeman, um, what is important with odors to an animal is what's meaningful. And what's meaningful, we know, is either that the odor means something at the innate level. So testosterone, they kind of have a sense innately of what, of what that means. Predatory odors, these kinds of things, right? So basically, uh, nothing they've had to learn. Uh, and we know there's quite a few of these in ethology. So uh, predatory odors being very good examples of this. So uh, young mice will um, never exposed to cats will, will respond with, uh, uh, with fear to uh, cat urine, for instance. Okay. But then the other type are the conditioned ones, right? So when you work in a, aggression uh, uh, remediation, I think one of the challenges is to figure out what are the triggers, what are the environmental cues that may actually explain what's going on. And again, the problem is as humans, <laughs> we don't pick up <laughs> on the olfactory ones. So we're probably missing a lot of the time a key component to what is triggering this right now, right? It could be a perfume, it could be the, the smell of another dog, it could be that strange smell in the urine of the uh, neighbor's dog. It, it can be who knows what, right? And that's been associated with a bad experience and there you go, they just, they just lose it. So I don't have a solution there other than say that there is a strong connection between scent and inhibiting system and therefore also um, the endocrine system and, and obviously any kind of aggressive behavior. It's so, so interesting because I'm, as you're saying all that, I'm thinking about just how much dogs, just how powerful dogs, uh, that sense of smell is and how they could uh, latch on to something in the environment that was, and we, we were talking about negative associations. So something negative happens when that scent is around. And with humans, us being so visual, how do we, how do, could we ever even start to begin to notice those things? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I don't know how to implement this. This is the, the magic that you guys do. Uh, but one thing that you can do, I think, is when you can identify a situation where the dog is very calm or engaging in a calm kind of interaction, I think using an odor in that moment, uh, anything, pick anything, lavender essential oil, whatever, although usually essential oils are, are kind of a punch in the nose to dogs, but you know, very diluted, but some kind of odor that is associated to calmness can actually be a tool like any other kind of uh, physical auditory or visual stimulus it could also be used uh, uh, as a tool in those situations so it's almost like flipping it around if if i can't prevent or even identify that order that's associated with a you know bad interaction or bad emotion let's create one that is associated with a good interaction or a good situation or a good emotion very very interesting it's uh, sort of the similar concept of you know sometimes some trainers will use a particular mat and they create a rich history of reinforcement on that mat but they also it's always a safe place for the dog to go and then you transition that mat to another environment in which you're trying to work with the dog on the undesirable behavior. But it makes complete sense for uh, you to also use the power of the olfactory sense in the same manner. It's, it's really 
the only the only limitation of it i think is it's how difficult it is to control olfactory stimuli you know because if you put it out there how do you get rid of it like for instance if the situation becomes tense again you want to remove it so the dog doesn't you know uh, think like now that it's again associated with something negative sometimes odor don't allow you to do this very well right uh but again, there's methods of delivery, different ways that you could do this, um, I'm sure, um, or maybe situations where, you know, it's more separated in time and space, right? That space and that time has that order, and that's great. But, uh, you know, anyway, um, a lot to think about there. And I've, I've, I've had a few ideas about this over the years, but it, it's easier to apply with humans, again, because we... You know, you you have the scent right here, and then you move it there, and you already don't smell it anymore. So you know, we have more control over the stimulus in a sense. But dogs, uh, you know, uh, just um, uh, it it tends to linger these molecules, and they they will still detect them. So it can be problematic that way. Simone, thank you so much. Uh, this I could talk to you all day and literally just listen <laughs> and ask you more questions, but I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, where can people find more about you and what you're up to? On Facebook, maybe. Uh, actually, uh, not necessarily my, my personal page. In fact, I may even not recommend it because <laughs> uh, I, there's two pages that uh, one is a group and the other one is a page within Facebook. Uh, you will find it under Canid and Reptile Behavior and Olfaction Lab. One is called that. The other one is called Canid and Reptile uh, Behavior and Olfaction Team. Uh, forget which one is which on twitter we are at it's at dal canines dal is for dalhousie university so it's d-a-l canines and i have a website which is not great i have to make it better it's all text-based right now but it's uh, uh, simon.gadbois.org there's quite a bit about what we do in the lab and the different kind of research programs we have now yeah excellent excellent Simone, thank you again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I hope to see you soon in the future in person. I hope so. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me for The Bitey End of the Dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, or give a rating to the episode. And don't forget to hop on over to aggressivedog.com or the Loose Leash Academy for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues.